Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, serving as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me, my collaborator this fine Friday morning is the scholar and gentleman, Phil Duffy, who's our constitutional instructor. And we're in the midst of a study looking at the foundational principles upon which uh, a constitution ought to be structured, talking about issues that uh, we see as problems, given the kind of tyrannical, out-of-control government we have in Washington, D.C. today, and uh, wanting to propose some solutions to those problems. And one of those problems that often doesn't get talked about, may not be seen by the average citizen, is the problem of banking. And uh, commonly, which is, well, you know, banking is that thing down the block there where I make deposits and cash checks. And so uh, we don't think a great deal about banking, but actually the entire economy is manipulated, controlled by one particular bank, and that is the Federal Reserve, which curiously enough is not federal. That is, it's not technically part of our federal government, and therefore it's not technically accountable to our federal government. Just ask uh, former Congressman Ron Paul who repeatedly, as chairman of the uh, uh, banking committee, as chairman, he asked for the audit of the Federal Reserve. After all, they got to be accountable to somebody. Why not to the people? We the people. Well, the Federal Reserve repeatedly refused to ever, ever allow uh, themselves to be accountable to to, uh, have an audit to what they are doing because they are a private organization owned by private individuals whose uh, names we really don't actually know, uh, the individuals who hold stock in it. But these people have an enormous advantage over all the rest of us in that they, unlike anyone else, they get to print money out of thin air. That's right. Without doing any work whatsoever, just uh, you know, a few digits on the, on the computer or uh, roll the printing press and voila, They've just created a million dollars that's their money, and then they loan that money to we, the people, our federal government. And we have to pay them interest on that money that costs them nothing uh, to produce, no labor involved. And uh, this is the root of the inflation that we see uh, in in, in our day. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, this huge, huge issue that kind of lies beneath the waves in the consciousness of of most Americans? Well, if I were to put a title on this, um, I would call it removing central bank power, including the power to inflate. But then I'm going to start off with something that seems to be totally unrelated, but is in the final analysis. And that is the idea of economic classes. Much has been made of class distinctions and their political implications. According to Adam Smith, there were three economic classes, the land-based class, the laboring class, and capitalists. Marx and Engels took that view to its extreme, that there were only two conflicting classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Prior to both writers, Richard Cantillon took a contrary position, that there were those who labored for a fixed wage while there was an employment contract, and those who guided the factors of production the entrepreneurs. He quickly added that these were not economic classes, but that entrepreneurship was open to all. History has demonstrated that Cantillon's view was the correct one. 
Well, history has been harsh to all socialists. They have been undeterred in their attachment to the class contention idea. Workers had voted with their feet for the emerging world of free enterprise because it offered them an absolute standard of living improvement versus the utopian dream of socialist equality. The more practical-minded socialists then realized that their only hope was to find other classes that could be used to assure the constant conflict that socialism and all collectivisms requires. Race differences, as arbitrary as they are, have worked well over time, although the number of exceptions to the race oppression view of the world has become great enough that many are questioning its validity. Sexual preference has been elevated as a class oppression idea, as has global warming. Other class differences seem to arise each year, keeping the political pot boiling. But these are merely distractions from what is really going on. Candelon was right. These are not true economic classes as existed in the feudal age. These are artificial differences that are important to politicians who feed on them. In the final analysis, there is only one economic class distinction, the distinction between those who rule and those who are ruled. As has been proven in the last couple of centuries, the form of government matters little. So-called representative governments can be oppressive as monarchies of old and modern dictatorships. To the extent that politicians can distract us into believing that other differences matter, we are less able to focus on the truth about the real differences that exist in society. Under the concept of representative government, the rulers should be uh, almost powerless. After all, they are vastly outnumbered by those who are ruled. That inherent weakness is removed by a hierarchy of greed and envy. The greed part of the hierarchy is composed of those who support the ruling class, the special interests that encourage the rulers to share some of the spoils of the system. The envy part is composed of those who are mindlessly led to believe that they have been oppressed by others who have been more successful in life. They find the class struggle idea appealing. They become the useful idiots who are required in any centralized governing plan. The limits of useful idiocy were severely tested in the close of the Republican George W. Bush administration and the beginning of the Democratic Barack Obama administration in 2008-2009. With strong government interference and encouragement, the financial sector of the economy was in crisis. After sacrificing Lehman Brothers to bankruptcy, the politicians panicked because too much of their power base, the banking system, was threatened. In spite of 75% or more of the people opposing bailouts, the politicians forced them through anyhow. The handwriting was on the wall. If the politicians tried this again, they would be ejected from power. In 2020, claiming a medical emergency, politicians shut down a major part of the U.S. economy. This time, classic bailouts would not work to repair the damage politicians had done. The people would not buy into bailing out special interests one more time. It was necessary to cast a wider net. 
individual stimulus was designed to anesthetize a much larger group of useful idiots, such as they would they would be immune to the pain caused by the stimulus. The fact that for every dollar received by ordinary individuals, eight dollars went into the pockets of special interests this time. The pain would be felt in the price of consumables as inflation did its mischief. In addition, there was significant increase in the federal debt. In spite of, ele of the elegant nonsense being spewed by modern monetary theorists, there were prices to be paid for financial irresponsibility. What can we learn from these examples? Even before considering them, we should reflect upon Lord Acton's stern warning. Power corrupts. The people who control governments have an insatiable desire for even more power. History has demonstrated that they will ignore constitutions as long as they have sufficient money to expand their power and as long as the consequences of getting caught are tolerable. Let's focus on the funding of power expansion and corruption. According to the Constitution of 1787, Congress has the power to tax and to borrow. But to borrow, one must pay back the principal and the interest on the loan. At some point, lenders signal they are no longer willing to extend credit to borrowers, so it is the power to tax that ultimately matters most. But governments can't tax infinitely, and they usually are unwilling to reduce spending, which is their primary weapon in the war to extend their power. What is the best way for government to continue spending without instigating a revolution? Create counterfeit money, money that has no value behind it. The crime is too easily detected, however, so governmental treasuries avoid doing that directly by establishing proxies, central banks. The comments that follow are admittedly a superficial treatment of the subject. Thorough discussion could be tedious for the average reader or listener. A more limited discussion, on the other hand, can still give one a sense for the nature of the Federal Reserve System operations and how those operations interfere with free market activity. The Federal Reserve System, established in 1913, is actually the third attempt to create a central banking system in the United States. It is the most durable of the three having survived 110 years. The first bank in the United States was shut down in 1811, and the second bank in the United States in 1836. That durability of the Federal Reserve System has nothing to do with, it, with performance. According to the Federal Reserve's mission statement, the Board of Governors has stated, the mission of the Federal Reserve System is to foster the stability, integrity, and efficiency of the nation's monetary, financial, and payment systems so as to promote optimal macroeconomic performance. The statement is classic Orwellian doublespeak, as the 2023 dollar has lost 97% of its value since 1914. Furthermore, the Federal Reserve System's 39-year policy of depressing the federal funds rate which influences other interest rates, has made government borrowing artificially less expensive, but has also allowed state and municipal governments as well as private firms 
to borrow cheaply, creating malinvestment throughout the economy. Although market interest rates were generally tied to the Fed's zero interest rate policy throughout most of this period, they decoupled in 2021 as the annual inflation rate, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, broke above the 2% on its way to 9%. This forced the Fed's hand in raising the federal funds rate starting in March 2022. The resulting belt tightening throughout the financial system has revealed a destructive business cycle. Although it fails to acknowledge its role, the Federal Reserve has another challenge, financing the annual federal deficit, the excessive government expenditures over tax and other receipts. Annual deficits ran between $158 billion in 2002 to $459 billion in 2008, but then shot up to $1.413 trillion in 2009, staying in the $1 trillion-plus range until 2012. They remained in the sub-trillion-dollar range until the massive interruptions of the economy by governments in 2020, which were blamed on the COVID-19 pandemic. The budget deficit in 2020 was an outstanding, I should say astounding, $3.132 trillion. The budget deficit of 2022 was $1.4 trillion, and in 2023 is $1.5 trillion. Comparing budget deficits to presidential administrations raises some difficulties. Since federal budgets are set to begin October 1 of the prior budget year and end September 30th of the budget year. Thus, the 2020 budget was signed by President Donald Trump, and subsequent budgets were signed by President Joseph Biden. Recent attempts to put a lid on the federal debt have been unsuccessful. It appears that the federal government has entered a new era of financial irresponsibility independent of political party in which $1 trillion plus annual deficits are the norm. Because it cannot otherwise fund daily operations, the Treasury issues short-term bonds. Here's how the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System describes the operation. The Federal Reserve purchases Treasury securities held by the public through a competitive bidding process. The Federal Reserve does not purchase new Treasury sec, uh, securities directly from the U.S. Treasury, and Federal Reserve purchases of Treasury securities from the public are not a means of financing the federal deficit. In financing the federal deficit, the federal government borrows from the public by issuing Treasury securities, which are sold at auction according to a schedule that is published quarterly. The Treasury determines the types and amounts of Treasury securities sold at auction with the goal of achieving the lowest financing cost for the federal government over time. The Federal Reserve does not participate in competitive bidding at Treasury auctions, and the Treasury's debt management decisions are not influenced by the Federal Reserve's purchases of Treasury securities in secondary markets. Now, that was the, the political uh, 
the 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 common story that comes out of the government. But there's something that's very different going on here. It all sounds antiseptic so far, but we are all members of the public, and unless we are a part of a select group that has been invited to these auctions, in no way can these bonds be assumed to be truly owned by the public. Who gets an invite to the auctions? The auction is technically open to the public, but 24 bond dealers are the key to the operation. The governors of the Federal Reserve System claim they operate independently of the Treasury, according to this statement. All monetary decision policy decisions of the Federal Reserve, including buying and selling securities, are made independently of the borrowing decisions of the federal government and are intended solely to fulfill the mandates set out for the Federal Reserve by law. Maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. Recall their statement. Federal Reserve purchases of Treasury securities from the public are not a means of financing the federal deficit. It doesn't matter if an organization purchases bonds directly from the Treasury as the bond issue is initially floated, or if they purchase them subsequently. They acquire the lending instruments, and they are legally lenders. The other players in the market are aware of their activity and alter their actions as a result. According to the Federal Reserve's own data, its performance by comparison to its mission has been abysmal. But now it is making this extraordinary statement. All monetary policy decisions of the Federal Reserve, including buying and selling securities, are made independently of borrowing decisions of the federal government and are intended solely to fulfill the mandate set out by the Federal Reserve by law. Maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. To the contrary, if actions over time have destabilized prices and its actions to moderate uh, long-term interest rates have served only to depress them well below natural level, natural market levels, creating malinvestment in destructive business cycles. Why should we believe the Federal Reserve System has this magical power to assure maximum employment? First, let us recognize that governments since the Romans, including those of Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, have achieved that directly by involving their nations in war. Then consider that there was no unemployment in the Soviet Union and Mao's China. Everybody worked or pretended to do so. There were consequences to this maximum employment policy. In the case of the wars, there was death, disability, and property destruction. And the planned economies of the Soviets and Mao could not keep up with the free market economies of the West. The whole concept of maximum employment is questionable. How is employment even to be measured? The labor statistics provided to ju uh, justify government interventions are notoriously invalid. And who provides these statistics? The federal government. Again, this is like having the fox guard the chicken coop. Let's return to the assets the Federal Reserve acquires on the open market. Where does the Federal Reserve System get the money to pay for these assets? The Cato Institute describes the process concisely. The Fed does not print money to buy assets because it does not have to. 
it can create money with a mere keystroke. In other words, the creation of new money by the Federal Reserve System is a bookkeeping mechanism, not the creation of real wealth. But that creation of money nonetheless circulates and expands in the economy as a result of fractional reserve requirements that allow banks to loan multiples of the reserves they actually retain, expanding the money in circulation. Can the Federal Reserve System defy economic law? Can it operate as a pump-priming mechanism creating money whenever it appears to be necessary? There's little question that as an alternative to increasing taxes, inflating the money supply can defer the moment of financial truth. But that is not to say that it can bypass it altogether. The verdict of history is clear, as evidenced by the decay of ancient Rome, the French Revolution, Weimar, Germany, and countless other examples of attempts to correct past governmental irresponsibility with an inflated money supply. When inflation passes a certain theoretical point, called hyperinflation, the money structure is destroyed, and the fiat money created by the government and their proxies, central banks, becomes worthless. Supporters of the Federal Reserve System claim that their relationship to the government is different. They rely on the alleged independence of the system. But the Federal Reserve System is a political animal. Its existence is due to an act of Congress in 1913 and is supposedly overseen by Congress. Yet the Federal Reserve System does not publish its financial reports, claiming to do so would threaten its independence. Imagine a firm in the private sector making such a silly claim. The chairs, the system's chair and vice chair and other gov uh, governors are nominated by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. These people are not independent. They are unaccountable. Accepting the creation of money out of thin air, all of the functions of the Federal Reserve System could be performed honestly within the free market system. As an unaccountable, quasi-governmental entity, the Federal Reserve System creates an unnecessary and dangerous step in banking operations. Its existence seems best to serve political interests and their need to obfuscate banking operations in order to keep the public in ignorance. A central banking system endangers a republic and should be prohibited under a new constitution. Well, amen to that, Phil. Yes, uh, prohibited. And actually, under our old constitution, if it was had been properly interpreted and properly handled, it never would have been permitted. But you're right to point out that because, in a sense, our, our, our existing constitution didn't so clearly shut the door, uh, it, it uh, you know, it allowed for this to be created. Actually, many of the founders believe that it did. Thomas Jefferson believed that the uh, central bank was illegal, unconstitutional. But uh, Alexander Hamilton, who seemed to have the ear of George Washington, perhaps as a favored son because of his service to uh, George Washington as a uh, you know adjutant in the um, in the War for Independence, when he proposed a bank, he claimed this is Alexander Hamilton's claim that Article One, Section Eight of the U.S. Constitution, because it talks about uh, a list of enumerated powers in there. At the end of the list, it says 
the things that are necessary and proper. But what Hamilton was fudging on is the necessary and proper clauses, necessary and proper to the preceding list of uh, 17 items in Article 1, Section 8. So in other words, one of the items that uh, was on that list is the post office. So whatever was necessary and proper to the creation of a postal system, yes, that was a part of the powers that we, the people, were granting to the federal government. But regarding money, the only thing that uh, was granted is the statement, actually not even Article 1, Section 8, but the idea that coining money, and, and Congress has the power to control uh, the, the weights, the standard weights and measures in terms of that, but coining money, not printing money, coining money, and the coining of money in no way uh, uh, countenance the idea of the federal government creating its own central bank. And James Madison, who I think is rightly called the father of our Constitution, his line of reasoning was very clear when this was debated in the House of Representatives. He believed the legislature is one branch of the government. It was one branch that was most likely to overextend its legitimate constitutional authority. And so he argued that if Congress could use the necessary and proper clause to extend its jurisdiction, there would be no effective limit on government. In other words, government would have no limit as to what it could do. And so Madison believed that the power to create a corporation had to be explicitly authorized because it was not something that was stated in the Constitution. And it couldn't be say, well, we read through the uh, between the lines of the Constitution. We could say, yeah, yeah, uh, Congress has the power to uh, uh, create corporations. And by the way, the first bank was a corporation created by uh, the Congress and, and passed by President Washington. Uh, and President Washington, uh, evidently reviewing the constitutional issues, uh, you know, deciding whether to sign it or veto it. Uh, uh, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson at that time renewed his arguments against the national bank because in his view, I believe a proper constitutional view, the word necessary in the necessary and proper clause meant something more than something that's convenient or something that is useful. It's true meaning as Jefferson is. Jefferson was thinking was that it was closer to something that was indispensable. So if Congress had other ways to secure its objectives, a national incorporated bank, Jefferson argued, was unnecessary and improper. Not necessary and proper, but unnecessary and improper. So both Madison, father of the Constitution, and, and Jefferson, who at that, that time was the Secretary of State, argued against it. But sadly, they lost that argument and uh, the first bank was chartered. And uh, as you mentioned, Phil, it was ended in 1811. Now, it's interesting, just a little historical side note about its ending. You see, the banking cartel was more than just the Central Bank of the United States, the first bank of the United States. There was a bank in England, Central Bank of England. There was central banks on the continent. And these central banks all had family relationships. You know, the Rothschilds owned them and controlled them and so forth. And I believe it was Nathan Rothschild who said, that if they would end the central bank, if the central bank would end in the United States within one year, the United States would be at war. Well, that's a pretty strong statement to make for a banker. What kind of control does a banker have over the entire government of, in this case, of England, to see that the government of England would go to war against the United States if the United States did not maintain its central bank? And lo and behold, 1811 is followed by 1812, and we ended the central bank, and yes, we were at war with Great Britain because 
the controlling interest of those central banks so control the government of England that the government of England essentially would do whatever the central bankers wanted to do. In other words, you could say central banks are a way in which private individuals take over a government and in a sense that government becomes their puppet. The government's going to do whatever they want because the financial strings are controlled by the central bank. Central bank loans money to them. It uh, recalls those loans that will, you know, so the central bank really has enormous power. And in a sense, it's a shadow government, a government behind the scenes that nobody elected. In our case, our, our third year, the Federal Reserve, it's not only uh, nobody elected them. It's a private group of international powerful people. It's not even the American government, which the first and second central bank were ostensibly they were. Uh, controlled by the government and owned in, in some respects by the government of the United States. Well, you know, all holds and all gloves were off with the Federal Reserve. It's clear that it's not owned by uh, the, the government of the United States. It's not controlled by the government of the United States. It's not accountable. It refused, as I said before, Ron Paul's insistence that it be audited. It refused to be audited again and again because it was basically saying, the idea we're independent means we are not answerable. We are not accountable to Congress, to the president, to the Supreme Court. We're, we're accountable to no one. We do what we please. We create money out of thin air and we force you, the people of these United States, to accept it and pay interest on this money that cost us nothing to produce. I think the this is such a bizarre idea. I think the easiest way to help folks understand uh, what this is like is if you ever played a game of Monopoly, you know that there's a limited amount of money in the till there. You know, there's so many that, that you're handed at the beginning of the game. And, you know, there's just so much money and there's so much property. And it, it's, it's a limited game. But what if one member, say the banker in, in this case, the one who uh, controls the bank in the, in the game Monopoly, suppose he had a photocopy machine right next to him. And at his whim, at any time that he chose, he could start printing out $500 bills for himself. Now, I was going to, you know, freely give these to anybody else. He was the only one with the printing press, and he could print up as much money as he wants. Well, it's very clear what happens in the game of Monopoly. The person who wins the game is the one who has the most money, the most property, and ultimately controls everything and everyone, and the rest of the country, the rest of the players in the game ultimately own nothing. Kind of reminiscent of the World Economic Forum, one of those evil organizations allied with the, the central bankers that uh, it has promised us by the year 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Whoa, wait a minute. You mean if I own a house and I hold the title deed to the house, that's going to be gone? Yeah, that's what they're claiming. If I have money in my investments and retirement funds and all oh, that's going to be gone, you will own nothing is what they're promising. So in a sense, they believe they're close enough. Of course, their date may be off. Maybe it's 2040, maybe it's 2050, who knows? But their date may be off, but they're claiming they're working like that central banker in the Monopoly game to print up so much money. And Phil, you've mentioned the trillions, you know, the budgets are trillions over overspending year after year. You know, what how how deeply are we in debt as a country? We're told it's 32 trillion, but that's only if you don't count the unfunded mandates like Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. So, you know, you talk about them, you're talking about over a hundred trillion dollars, a number so mind-boggling and so large that what it does is create debt slaves of succeeding generations of Americans, that each of us will be paying our entire lifespan to try to pay off this national debt 
that was actually money created by that the fraudsters, the banker sitting at the monopoly table with a with a money printing machine next to him. And because he could print up all the money, obviously he could buy up all the property throughout the entire game of monopoly. He can never lose. And that's why they're saying you will own nothing. They're planning worldwide, and this is not just a scheme here in the United States and, and the central bankers of the of the Federal Reserve, but all over the world, they're planning the same thing. In fact, every country in the world, with the exception of few like North Korea, and I think maybe Syria, maybe one or two other countries that do not have a central bank controlled by the Bank of International Settlements, the kind of central bank for central bankers. So they've got this scheme worldwide. And basically by creating money out of thin air in all of these countries, they can buy up everything, everyone's property, all the mineral resources, all the oil, Every part of the country can be owned by these central bankers, this elite group of uh, you know, several hundred families at the top of the world who are running it all and seeking to drive everyone out of, uh, out of any financial existence. Well, what's the solution to this? Well, clearly, we need to end something like the Federal Reserve. We will, and I agree, Phil, fully that we need to see to it that a new constitution would not have any provision that would allow for such a central bank. These things can be covered and should be covered uh, by the free market. The free market economy is the best source of liberty and freedom, and it gives everyone an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to make or break, and that's the, the beauty of it. It's not socialism where everybody has an equal income and everybody's got to equal everything. No, no, no. There will be differences in wealth. There will be differences in what people own because some people will be more successful in the free market and others will not. But everyone has the equal opportunity. And that's what our founders meant when they talked about equality. They did not mean everybody with the same outcome. They meant everybody had the same opportunity. Everyone was equal before the law. That is equal in, in their God-given rights being preserved uh, by a constitutional republic. So this whole issue of banking and this whole issue of uh, who controls that uh, if it's not controlled by the free market, if it's controlled by either the government itself, which the first and second central bank were, or in our case, under the third bank, uh, controlled by outside interests, foreign interests that we don't even know exactly who they are, but they have reduced the, the purchasing power of the American dollar in 110 years. They've reduced it by 97%. That is if you had a dollar in 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created and you took that dollar and you stuck it under your mattress and did nothing with it for the, the next 110 years, today, the purchasing power of that one dollar is only equivalent to three cents, three cents of what its purchasing power would have been uh, back in, in uh, you know, 1913, which is why we talk about the, you know, you may have heard these phrases, a dollar a day was, a, you know, a, a living wage. dollar a day? You possibly live on a dollar a day. Well, wait a minute. When you know five cents would buy you a, a, a loaf of bread and other things, you know, you purchase a house for several thousand dollars, not uh, several hundred thousand dollars. All those things, if you take away the inflation that we have seen as a result of what the Federal Reserve has done to us in 110 years, you'd recognize that. Oh yeah, you know. And when we look at the the value of the dollar in terms of its purchasing power from the founding of our country. Uh, 1776, on through up until the Federal Reserve. There were some variations, particularly in times of war in terms of purchasing power, uh, particularly because like under under Lincoln, there was fiat currency created 
And so there was a blip in time until that fiat currency was purchased back. In other words, it was exchanged for actual real money, gold and silver. So there was blips, but there was no extreme like we have seen since 1913, where the inflation has skyrocketed and to the point where the dollar is now only worth three pennies on what it was uh, 110 years ago. So for we, the people, we need to understand what's the, you know, what's the purpose of government? Well, the purpose of government is to secure and protect our God-given rights. One of those God-given rights, of course, is the right to own property. That is the right to keep the fruit of our labor. And so if I labor and take, say, $100 and I decide I'm going to save that $100 rather than spend it, but inflation eats away at that such it's no longer worth $100. It's only worth $3. It's like, wait a minute. I have lost someone. Has, and in this case, the Federal Reserve has stolen from me. If I was 110 years old, I'm not. So if I was 110 years old and I'd saved that $100 in, in 1913 and now it's only worth $3, somebody has robbed me. That is, somebody has violated the laws of nature. Nature's God, thou shalt not steal. And the very purpose of government is to protect our God-given right to property. That is, when I earn or when I have inherited property, either way, if I have legitimately obtained property, then that property belongs to me and it's not to be taken by anyone uh, And uh, as the Federal Reserve has done. So if we were to right the wrongs that have been done to us for these 110 years, we'd have to find out exactly who these criminals are that have stolen ultimately hundreds of billions of dollars of the wealth of America and absconded with it and put it in their own you know, property or their own uh, uh, bank account, or their own stacks of gold, whatever it is. Well, a proper function of our military then would be go to go repatriate that, repatriate that which has been stolen from us for the 110 years of the existence of these criminals in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Well, that's not happening right now because the Federal Reserve and their cronies, the people, are the ones who installed, well, I like to call them Beijing Biden and, and so on. And uh, they've also installed politicians in Congress and uh, in the Supreme Court and in the state legislature. And all over, our government has been corrupted with these who are at the beck and call uh, of these evildoers who've been stealing from us. So uh, like you say, Phil, the uh, Fox keeping the uh, hen house is what we see here in, in many instances. And so we need to create a system whereby truly our property rights can be protected by a government from we the people instead of a government, and in this case, controlled by entities behind a, a black curtain. We don't know who they are or what they're doing, but we can see what they have ultimately done. They have destroyed the value of wealth in America. They have stolen from the American people over 110 years. And, and this needs to be brought uh, to right. Your thoughts? Well, I just had uh, a couple of thoughts here. Um, as you mentioned the fact that that uh, uh, Washington had approached Jefferson as one of his advisors uh, <clears throat> uh, with an opinion, and Jefferson was definitely against it. But he also uh, uh, approached uh, Attorney General Randolph, who likewise opposed it. So if you think of it, it was Randolph, uh, Jefferson, and Madison all clearly against this. And uh, let's see, all of those, by the way, were Virginians, like Washington. And who did he listen to? 
the New Yorker. Alexander Hamilton, who happened to have been his adjutant during the War of Independence. So, you know, military duty creates a closeness. There's no question about that. Uh, I think this is, there was a, a subsequent example of this kind of reliance on Hamilton, and that's the Whiskey Rebellion. And this is the only time that I know of that that uh, the the president as commander-in-chief actually took to the field. And uh, he actually, uh, he he directed this force of 13,000 uh, conscripts, in, in effect, or volunteers, both, of course. Uh, he accompanied them to, I think it was Carlisle, before he uh, turned over command to another officer. And I think what happened there was Washington is looking at this and saying, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. I think... I think it's time to get back and to separate the role of president from the field commanders. And he left it to, and of course, Hamilton was his right-hand man there. I don't think Hamilton actually had the, the uh, technical command, but he was the so-called advisor. And, you know, in effect, uh, he may have been, uh, he may have been directing the operation. Uh, so I think it was at this point that, that Hamilton finally, um, was revealed to to Washington, and and Washington was a little bit more conservative about accepting his opinion. So I think that was uh, a good step forward. Uh, incidentally, uh, there was a subsequent uh, president who acted like the commander in chief, but he did did this out primarily in the Washington area, and that was uh, Abraham Lincoln who had access to a new technology called the telegraph, and he micromanaged the war between the uh, the states. And, and visited, frequently visited generals and kind of instructed generals. And, you know, yeah, it, he was very oh. much involved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those are the two exceptions. I don't think there have been any other uh, presidents who have been so actively involved in the military. Uh, another thought was that... Um, we need to put the, the federal government under a cruel accounting. You mentioned the fact that we have something like 33 or $34 trillion in, in debt, but that's only the recognized debt under a system of accounting called cash accounting, which is typically reserved for what we derisively call mom and pop shops. Uh, federal government, which is the largest business entity in the world, should never be under cash accounting. It should be under accrual accounting. Even the the um, the nation of New Zealand is under accrual accounting, and of course, the federal government requires that all cor corporations uh, submit their books on an accrual basis, not on a cash basis. If, as you pointed out, if the federal government were to employ um, accrual accounting, it would have to acknowledge the entitlements. The, the debt obligations that it has incurred, which would be over $100 trillion. Clearly, there is no way in the world that uh, anybody, any citizen, uh, except the wealthiest could pay, pay their share of that. And when we, you think under progressive taxation, probably about half of the, the, uh, uh, the residents of the United States pay virtually nothing. Whereas the other pit and half 
have all of the responsibility. So I think um, those are just a couple of thoughts I had uh, listening mm-hmm. to your comments. Thank you, Phil. And you know, I, I like your point that it was three Virginians versus the opinion of one New Yorker. <laughs> and, and if I believe I'm correct on that, all three, including George Washington himself at that point in time, were slave owners. And I know people are quick today to point this out and say, oh, it's terrible, terrible, these slave owners and so forth. But think of what has happened since 1913. In a sense, the entire country, our entire country has been progressively enslaved. Maybe maybe that's what the progressives mean when they talk about progress. You know, uh, you have to always wonder when the progressives say, yeah, yeah, we're the progressives. It's like, where are you progressing to? What road are you on? What's your destination? Because it's clear their destination, like the World Economic Forum says, you will own nothing. So wait a minute. If you own nothing, but you have to work for somebody else, what are you? Well, I have, that's a definition of a slave. You don't own any property. You don't even own the clothes on your back, by the way. World Economic Forum says you will rent everything, you know. Uh, you, you have furniture in your house, you're going to rent that. You have a car, you rent that. Bicycle, you rent that. Maybe the clothes you even have on your back, you rent those. You own nothing. Uh, so that, that by definition, is, is enslavement. So it's, it's very curious because we do live in a day now where uh, the, the evils of slavery are being decried and, oh, we ought to be making reparations to those people who are descendants several generations from slaves. They themselves were never enslaved, but, you know, these kind of things are puzzling to me because it's like, well, wait a minute. Don't people see the progressive enslavement that we're experiencing right now? You know, that uh, uh, your wealth is being stolen from you. You're, you're earning money, but against your will, you, you never agreed to this. You never agreed to have the Federal Reserve stealing from you every day of the week, but they are. Uh, and they're taking your hard-earned wealth by a means that is completely illicit and I believe completely unconstitutional. Because even if uh, some might argue that uh, Alexander Hamilton's first bank was constitutional, it's very clear this Federal Reserve System, a private organization, that's completely unconstitutional. There's no mark. You can't twist the words of the Constitution in any way, shape, or form to come up uh, with this system. So it's kind of like we've been introduced to a new form of maybe slavery's a too, too strong a term, but maybe serfdom, a new feudalism. Where, you know, you're going to be on the masses land and you're going to have to pay him, you know, 50% of your crop. Oh, yeah, that's the average that every American pays in taxes, fees, federal, state and local government today is 50%. That is tax freedom day for most Americans isn't until the month of July when they actually can begin working for themselves and keeping the money themselves rather than most of it going to Uncle Sam and going to their state capital as well as to their uh, their county government. And then you add all the taxes and fees together, about 50%, 50% of the work of most American families goes to some form of government at some level. So that would kind of define serfdom. And, uh, you know, again, again, in, in history, most people decry serfdom. Oh, that was a terrible oppression of all those poor people who were, you know, essentially slaves on the land. And they had no freedom to actually accumulate wealth over the course of their lifetime or uh, it ever improve the situation of their children. And think of that situation I talked about. We, we have become debt slaves ourselves, and we have indebted not just our next generation, our children, but our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And great, great, it may go on infinitely 
we may have as an entire society become debt slaves, but we've become debt slaves, not by any decision of our own, but by a criminal gang known as the Federal Reserve that uh, corrupted our Congress in 1913 and began to create this system by which they could steal from the American people and steal the American wealth and enrich themselves and empower themselves, sadly, to, well, you know, be creating the new world order uh, and those, those sort of things that the World Economic Forum is so infamous for, for promoting. Oh, I agree with you. We are, you know, if we look at the destination, we are on the road to, uh, to serfdom, as, as Hayek wrote in his uh, uh, classic book. Uh, today, the actual enslavement or serfdom, if you want to use the, the nicer word, is 50% as a society in whole. 50% of our, our wealth roughly goes into governance. And we are allowed to keep 50% for ourselves. But the potential enslavement, as I believe you, you pointed out, is 100%. There is nothing in the Constitution of the United States that, present, that prevents the federal government from moving on with this so-called system of progressive, uh, progressive taxation uh, from taking us almost up to 100%. And when that happens, then, of course, the question is, what would the American people do? And uh, perhaps they would do nothing, because uh, if the World Economic Forum is you know, accurate in their forecasts, so you will own nothing and you will be happy. I wouldn't be happy, but maybe most people would be. I don't know. Uh, do the American people still have a love for liberty? Do they still have a sense and understanding that the purpose of government is to protect your God-given rights, one of which is your right to property? To accumulate wealth and keep that wealth for yourself. Do the people, are the people willing to stand up and resist that? Which again is part of the reason we exist here. We the people, the Constitution matters because we want the American people, a grassroots movement of American people that rise up and say, enough. We are tired of this. And let me just tell you, one of the most encouraging things to me was the past week uh, I was at Camp Constitution an organization that uh, has an annual one-week camp in New Hampshire, and uh, just so encouraging, 150 people there. More than 100 of those were students under the age of 18. And we were teaching them these principles, the founding principles, what the Constitution actually says, the limits it places on our federal government, the uh, structure and design of our, our constitutional republic, uh, the, the, the teaching of the Declaration of Independence, which is absolutely essential to understand the kind of, all these things. And, and let me just tell you this quick story, because uh, we had a presidential candidate come visit us for about an hour on the last day of camp, the last full day of camp, Thursday. Vivek uh, Ranishwamy, uh, he's running in the Republican uh, primary, obviously way far beyond Trump, but you, know, but you may not, not hear about it. But he, he must be significant enough because Fox News showed up to film his his lecture and and, and uh, also uh, I think NBC was there but uh, we had been teaching and I had particularly been teaching these students that the most important question you can ask anyone running for office whether it's the president or the dog catcher is this question the question of purpose what is the purpose of human civil government and the answer of course is right right there in the Declaration of Independence plain as day that there is a creator God, our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. And those God-given rights, life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, and so on, 
So we had taught that and I had emphasized that, that that was the most important question. I was so pleased because when the question and answer time came and all the candidate provide, provided some space for students to ask questions. First student up got up and asked that question, sir, what is the purpose of government? And you could see the, the, the look in his eyes. He was uh, scrambling in his mind and, and he responded, well, that, that's a profound question. You know, and you could tell he was scrambling to try to figure out the answer. And he came back with something that's better than what I've heard from most people uh, who, who are running for office that, have, that I've asked that question. And he, he was close to the target. Uh, definitely not within the outer rings or certainly not a bullseye, but he, he was close. He was kind of in the range because his answer was this. Oh, the purpose of government is to preserve liberty. Okay, good as far as it goes. But I was so pleased with, with the student who asked that question because he did not let the candidate off the hook. He proceeded to say, our founders said the purpose of government was to protect God given rights. And immediately the candidate for said, oh, oh, yes, of course, of course, that, that's, that's the right answer. So in a sense, I was very pleased because our student was schooling a presidential candidate, the person who's running for the highest office in the land. And our student knew better what our form of government is about than this presidential candidate. And by the way, I like Vivek. He had a lot of good answers. Hey, we need to eliminate a whole bunch of federal departments. We need to get rid of the FBI. And he, you know, he had a good list of things that I would agree with, but uh, he needed to be schooled. And I was so pleased that our, our students there at Camp Constitution were actually schooling him. So in terms of, you know, there's a lot of dark things going on in our culture, homeschooling, which is 99% of the students there were, were all home, were homeschooled, just about all of them made one or two exceptions. But the bright light on the horizon for our country, I think, is homeschooling and students like at Camp Constitution who are learning uh, about our Constitution. By the way, if you're interested in, in watching any of the lectures, it's camp, uh, campconstitution.net. And my first lecture that, uh, that week was put up on YouTube in the evening, Monday evening, I think it was. And by sunup the next day, YouTube had taken it down as violating community standards. So <laughs> YouTube doesn't like what I had to say. <laughs> but I believe that lecture is now on Rumble with the uh, Camp Constitution. So anyway, just a, a, a note of there is some hope and there is students who are eager to learn these truths and parents who are there eager that their, their uh, children learn uh, the true understanding of our, our form of government. Pastor, that's a great story. I, I love it. it. It really gives me a lot of encouragement. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to take a crack at this. Uh, what would the American people do if they were pushed further with taxation and, and uh, inflation and so forth? Um, I think there's historical precedence, and the precedence is the French Revolution. If you look at the French Revolution, ultimately, I think the major cause of the French Revolution had to do with uh, centralization of power and its cost in the, the government of France, and that it happened over a long period of time. And to support that, that centralization, uh, you had increasing taxation. I mean, you had taxation of every kind, including, I believe it was the corvée, uh, which was that the peasant had the responsibility to provide physical labor uh, for a certain period of time for building roads and that kind of thing. Um, and the corvée was, was very, very much despised. 
But basically what happened, they reached a point where uh, the expenses of government, and uh, we could think of this as the, uh, uh, you know, the leech, if you will, uh, sucking all the blood out of the, out of the, uh, uh, the host. Uh, basically, they reached a point where there was nothing more to give. And the people who had been accustomed longer than any other nation, I think, in Europe, to centralization of power and corruption that comes along with it, the nation of France finally erupted and said, you know, we've had enough. And of course, that eruption went way beyond the the uh, bounds of justice. I mean, uh, if you look at the reign of terror, it was just uh, injustice uh, taken to its ultimate extreme. But basically, this is what this leads to. This will lead to bloodshed, to civil war, if this is not corrected. There are no alternatives. Mm, a sobering, sobering thought, and I, I agree with you. And I think it might lead to the breakup of the republic, because certainly there Absolutely. are certain states, Texas being one that comes to mind, that uh, uh, feel that you know if this this agreement with what we've entered into with our federal government really is no longer in our favor. Uh, then uh, it's time to to create a government that would, which is exactly what the Declaration of Independence says. That you know, if the government instead of protecting your God-given rights attacks your God-given rights, which Federal Reserve is but one example of the federal government no longer protecting our God-given right to property, but attacking that God-given right to property, stealing from we the people. And in this case, not even to benefit the federal government directly, but rather to primarily funnel money into the hands of some foreign banksters. And I call them banksters because that's a combination of the word banker and gangster. But these federal, these international gangster banksters, uh, you know, they're, they're participating in the, in the plundering of America. And so when people reach a point, they say, this, this is intolerable. You're right. Uh, and that would not be pretty. We do not wish for that. We wish for a peaceful resolution. We believe a peaceful resolution can be reached as we, the people, restore our form of government. That is, that we recalibrate and either uh, uh, craft the design of our Constitution to lock it down, such that things as a Federal Reserve, you know, bank can never be created again or have to craft a new co Constitution to accomplish that. But one way or another, that we alter or as the as the Declaration of Independence says, when government no longer serves its purpose of protecting your God-given rights, we have a duty to alter or to abolish that government and form one that will protect our God-given rights. And people need to understand that's uh, essentially what uh, the war for independence was about. It was not that uh, King George III was horrible in every way. It's that, no, 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 he's not protecting our God-given rights. And therefore, we need to form a new government that will protect those God-given rights. But before we ever get to that point, what we're committed to here, we the people, is teaching the principles for sound government, teaching what the design of our founders was, teaching what the Declaration of Independence says, because if we're going to form uh, or reform this government or form a new government, we need to do it on principles that work. And those principles, uh, the laws of nature, nature's God, they work. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you with the Freedom Airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, inviting you back next Friday morning at 8 a.m. We'll, we'll continue our study and our discussion 
And we invite you, if you so like, to communicate with us to use my email, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. Join us next Friday.